0: Welcome back to Plenary Session Podcast. We're at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I'm back. I got a new episode for you. We got a lot to cover. The first part of this podcast, I'm going to do maybe 30 minutes on randomized control trials 101. Basics, two to one, three to one randomization. Why do we do randomized trials? When are they suitable? What are their advantages over observational studies? A little bit about Kaplan-Meier plots. A little bit about both blinding and concealment. And then in the second half of this podcast, I go down to San Diego and I sit with Papa Heen, Dr. Aaron Goodman, and he gives you his advice on how he advises fellows on choosing the first job, finding it, negotiating it, choosing it, all that will come in the second half. If you like Plenary Session Podcast, leave us a written review on the iTunes store. Tell us what you like about it and what you don't like about it. You can follow the new blog post, I'm gonna be talking about that, in the first part of this, developdrugs.substack.com. And you should follow my YouTube channel because there are videos there that aren't always on the audio feed. So stay tuned. We got a lot in store for you and I'll be back with many, many more topics to come in the weeks to come. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the channel. I want to talk about a new endeavor I have going. It's called the drug development letter. It's a letter for people interested in cancer drug and other drug development, particularly cardiovascular and Alzheimer's drugs. It's at developdrugs.substack.com. And if you like Plenary Session Podcast, if you like these sorts of critical appraisals of clinical trials, drug development articles, you're gonna like that website. It's going to try to have articles that are broadly accessible, but also some for the more technical readers. And in that respect, it'll be different than Sensible Medicine and Vinay Prasad's Observations and Thoughts because it's gonna go into the weeds. We're going to cover everything that's phase three, drug registration, phase four. We're going to cover pivotal phase twos. We may even get into early drug development and preclinical models. We're going to get into that probably around the conferences, but it's going to be the go to source. Cancer drugs will be most of it, but it will probably expand into cardiology and some other spaces. I recently posted, I think, a few of the inaugural posts. We've got a good one coming up on Sotorosib. We're going to try to cover a lot of the research that comes out of my laboratory and I recently interviewed Aaron Goodman for that, and uh, you should check it out. This is going to be a video, and an audio if you're listening on the Plenary Session feed, about randomized control trials, sort of 101, some basics to it. Just gonna be short and sweet. I was recently down in San Diego and Aaron asked me to explain kaplan meyer I did, and it got such a warm response. I was surprised. It was just 15 minutes right off the top of my head. But people really liked sort of some simple explanations of this stuff, so I figured, That's what you're gonna get today, and I'm also going to put this on the Plenary Session audio feed for those of you listening at home. So, Randomized Control Trials. Of course, randomization is a beautiful way to test things that offer putative benefits with modest to marginal effect sizes. If something has a parachute effect size, well, you don't need randomization to know if that works. You can see it by the naked eye. So if something improves survival from 0% near total fatality, like falling out of an airplane from 10,000 feet, to 99.999997% survival rate, like a parachute, it ain't 100, but it's pretty close, You don't need really much statistical test to know that it has a huge benefit. We're talking about most things in biomedicine with modest to marginal effect sizes, which is really most of what we do. Randomization, of course, you take a lot of people, you randomize them to one group or the other. One group gets some experimental intervention, the other group gets the best available care. Sometimes that's placebo, sometimes that's best available care plus a placebo, but what they shouldn't be getting is deprived of best available care. I'm sure we're going to cover that at some point. We've already covered it on this channel, we're going to cover it more. And we follow them in time. And the beauty of this is that in the absence of a therapeutic effect, what you've done is you've equilibrated outcome distributions. The outcome you care about should be broadly the same distribution in both groups unless there is a therapeutic effect. Now some people say that you eliminate uh, or you make it you eliminate all confounding, uh, you make it perfectly balanced. Um, the idea that to make it perfectly balanced is not, Technically true, it's the idea that the outcome distribution is equilibrated, and some particular indices may be slightly different, but you know they're different by chance alone, and very likely they're balanced by other differences that go the other direction. Now, why do we like randomized control trials? They have three virtues over what is increasingly popular. Observational studies used to make conclusions about causal efficacy of products. The three virtues that randomization has, of course, is number one. It controls for unmeasured confounding. Of course you balance the variables you were aware of as confounders but you also balance those other variables as well and observational studies just don't do that you know you could say let's compare people who rushed to get the bivalent booster to those who didn't well of course there's one difference that some people got the booster and some people didn't but there are other differences as well such as some people are the type of person is going to rush to get the bivalent booster. That's a unique type of person. They may be precautious in other ways. And so any differences between these two groups may be in part due to the intervention, but also in part due to the fact that they're different people. And that's the problem that plagues observational studies, unmeasured confounding. You don't know what you don't measure. Often we do a piss poor job of measuring socioeconomic factors, measuring behavioral factors. We barely have a grasp of that. People use very crude adjustments for income. They're not really getting at who is really living rich and privileged lives and who are not. And so, you know, that's a great pitfall of observational research. We control for that in randomization because we equilibrate the outcomes distribution in the absence of a therapeutic effect. The second thing we do is we anchor time zero. We make sure that everyone starts at the exact same time. Observational studies are always backwards looking or often backwards looking. And when they're backwards-looking, even when they're forwards-looking, because you may not start somebody off at exactly the same time. Now, what do I mean by that? If you want to study people who are hospitalized with a heart attack and compare those who were prescribed metformin to those who were not prescribed metformin, you probably would find that those who are prescribed metformin or maybe a statin or some other medication like that have better outcomes than those who were not prescribed those medications. Will you conclude that those medications are potentially life-saving? It's possible they are. But the other bias is that there's something unique about the people who had those prescriptions placed. They lived long enough to have somebody have an opportunity to place that prescription. They lived long enough through the acute myocardial infarction when people are panicking, when they're calling in the cath lab. They lived long enough till day two or day three where somebody could put them on metformin. Whereas somebody who comes in with an acute MI and they code immediately and then they die, they could not have ever had somebody place That prescription for metformin. So the time until you get metformin in a retrospective observational study looking at its efficacy post-MI is guaranteed to one group. You see, it's guaranteed to them because to define them, you define them as those who got it, but it's not guaranteed to the other group. And the time until it occurs is the guarantee time or immortal time. It's time that you couldn't have died because if you died, you couldn't be the group who got metformin. And this is a deep problem that plagues observational research, is that we don't exactly know the time zero. But randomization is beautiful because they're coming in and they're being randomized, and we're anchoring time zero at the moment of randomization. Second virtue. The third virtue, of course, is multiplicity or multiple hypothesis testing. If you take an observational data set like uh, the NHANES data set, which is a food frequency questionnaire, you can link it to long-term survival outcomes. And what you find is that for popular questions like green tea or dark chocolate, it's very likely that 10,000 or 100,000 different investigators have probed that relationship asking is more or less blueberries or more or less chocolate associated with long-term beneficial outcomes like living longer, living better. How many times have they run the analysis? Thousands of times, tens of thousands of times. How many times do they publish the analysis? Not every time they run it. Maybe they get a null estimate. Maybe they get something that's unimpressive. How many different ways can you run the analysis? And the answer is hundreds of thousands or millions or even tens of millions of ways you can adjust for age or sex or age or sex and pre-existing cardiovascular disease or age, sex, race, socioeconomics, smoking, and pre-existing cardiovascular disease or not. Famously, John Ioannidis, Tarag Patel, and Belinda Buford simulated taking a single observational data set and running simple questions, vitamin D and mortality, vitamin E and mortality, with all of the possible combinations that occur when you adjust for the 13 most popular adjustments. And what they found was that for many of these these substances, maybe 40% of things we eat, you can get statistically significant favorable and unfavorable conclusions merely by picking and choosing different covariates. So what's my point about multiplicity? Why is this the third limit of observational research? When you run a randomized trial, you write in stone what you're going to do. You set out to do it. There are not that many people doing it. For instance, when it comes to like masking and COVID 19, we have three major randomized efforts in the community across the whole pandemic. But when you do an observational study of masking during COVID 19, there may be thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of analytic plans that are being run. And they're all being filtered with many different, um, they're all being filtered through the lenses of the people who run those plans. And the person who gets the result they may not like, may not show the boss, and the boss who gets a result that they think is implausible, too good to be true, or that's un- that is pessimistic, they may not publish that. And then the entire publishing enterprise picks and chooses what is the end product, what we see from this huge process of analysis. So, why is randomization a virtue? It's not a virtue for every question, but for interventions that offer a purported benefit with a modest to marginal effect size, not for parachutes, but for most of the things we do in biomedicine because most of what we do in biomedicine has a modest to marginal effect size. They nicely solve three problems. One, they balance outcomes distributions in the absence of therapeutic effect. So they correct for that unmeasured confounding. Two, they anchor time zero so you don't have immortal time. You don't have that sort of bias. And number three, they actually correct for multiplicity because you just can't run 100,000 of them. Maybe in a future video or elsewhere, I'll talk about multiplicity that is being introduced in oncology because for the rare, you know, in this moment, we're actually, for a few drugs, we are actually running so many randomized trials that uh, you start to have to think about the whole universe of studies before you interpret any one. All right, so that's the randomized trial. It was originally developed, and I think most people believe it was in the 1940s that Streptozocin and the Medical Research Council of the UK was the first RCT. The point I recently made on a Sensible Medicine post was, You know, it's really interesting that the first randomized control trial was in the 20th century. The ancient Greeks didn't think about it. The Egyptians didn't think about it. It took to the 20th century. And I think that's and and even to this day, I think there are many people who haven't fully embraced it. There are people who said you couldn't do randomized trials of non-pharmacologic interventions during the pandemic. Those people were just totally wrong. Now they see that the Cochrane Review is astonishingly negative They want to say, we should have done those studies, and had we done them, they would have been positive, of course. That's their worldview. I think it is very psychologically difficult for human beings to believe in their heart that randomization is the best way to answer a question. We are mechanistic thinkers. We like to see the chain of events. We like to have faith in mechanisms. We like to rationalize and tell stories. We are reductionist scientists. We have difficulty thinking about emergent phenomenon, emergent behaviors. We have difficulty thinking about randomness. We're not comfortable letting ourselves and our faiths be determined by randomization. And as such, the Greeks didn't develop it. It wasn't developed in the 20th century. But to be fair, they could have easily developed it, because the ancient Greeks could easily have randomized fields to different crop strategies and figured out what works. They had all the tools at their disposal. They just didn't think of it. It is the greatest medical intervention of the 20th century. And it could be the greatest invention of the 21st century if we were to really embrace it and use randomization more and more earlier and more thoughtfully than what we do. All right, so that's a gist on randomized controlled trials. Let's just talk briefly about one-to-one, two-to-one randomization. This is something that somebody asked me from NYU. Um, One-to-one randomization is optimized for particular question you're asking, you want to know if a new treatment is better than an older treatment, you want to have the fewest number of people to detect a difference of x, whatever that difference is, the one-to-one randomization is going to be able to do that with the fewest number of participants. It is the optimal way to answer, does this treatment improve survival by 10 percentage points at year two? Let's say it'll take, you know, 100 people to answer that in a one-to-one randomization, 50 per arm, or 200 people, 100 per arm. If you start to go to -to two-to-one randomization or three-to-one randomization, it is to some degree suboptimal you need more total participants 2 to 1 i think typically it's 12% more 3 to 1 it's 33% more participants but because it's a skewed randomization 2 to 1 you can put twice as many people on what you think is the arm you're excited about the intervention arm and you can put one third is you can put fewer people on the arm you think is the bad arm it actually works out to be the case that 2 to 1 and 3 to 1 typically randomize fewer people to the control intervention then one-to-one randomization. Now, all this assumes that the intervention actually offers something of value. All right, I have to adjust this. Useless microphone stance. All this assumes the intervention offers something of value. And if you have a very favorable view of your intervention, you might want to do two-to-one or three-to-one. But of course, it isn't always the case. Many interventions fail, in which case, sadly, you've utilized more participants. And actually you may have even assigned more to the harmful or useless or futile strategy. The last thing I'll say about this, we have studied one purported purported explanation for two to one, three to one, which is that it is an enticement factor. People are more likely to accrue on your study if you offer two to one, because it's a new sexy drug. I want two out of three chance of getting that drug. I don't want just one out of two chance of getting that drug. Right doc? Well, Christina Janai and I studied it, I think in a BMC cancer paper, where we have shown predictors of drug, predictors of accrual in studies. And when you adjust for other known variables, what you find is that it don't make a lick of difference. They don't accrue even one moment sooner with one-to-one or two-to-one. And if what you're recommending is mediocre, tends not to work, or is harmful, you are squandering patients and using up a resource. So I'm generally a critic of that because I think in oncology, ironically, that a lot of what we do is bogus. Um, even our clinical trials that are quote-unquote positive are not really positive because we're not improving overall survival and health-related quality of life. And as such, I tend to prefer a one-to-one randomization. I guess we can talk about adaptive randomization briefly. There are some randomized clinical trials that the strategy is actually to adjust the ratio of randomization as the initial results come in. So the arm that starts to look more favorable, we're going to start to weight randomization to that arm and have more people accrue on that arm. Well, the problem with this is actually nicely uh, nicely argued by some NCI statisticians where they point out that one arm that gets an initial lead is going to start to get more people randomized to that arm. And then people randomized to that arm, one difference than the initial people is that they live in the future. They're either six months in the future or eight months in the future. So if there's a secular trend in that space, if we're getting better supportive care or palliative care or better hospitalization care or better at managing adverse events or better at managing adverse events of the disease in general, that's going to also benefit the intervention arm. So now you have two variables. You have It's a randomized study, and presumably the only difference between the two groups in terms of outcome is the therapeutic effect, But now you're also adding in a temporal effect. Any secular trend will actually benefit the arm that starts to get more randomization. So an early imbalance, even due to chance, can be reinforced by a secular trend and something that actually doesn't work so well is going to look favorable. Okay, that's a very technical point, but it's something to be aware of, that there is a debate about whether or not adjusting the randomization ratio over time. Obviously, even for two to one and these debates, the gold standard way to settle the debate is empirical data rather than sort of an argument about what ought to happen based on the principles of randomization, but empirical data is often lacking, as in this case. All right, let's talk about blinding and concealment. Concealment means at the moment of randomization, the person enrolling on the study doesn't know which arm they're gonna be in. It's really important. In the old days, some of the doctors would even hold the envelope up to the light and look and use that to thwart randomization. And if the person knows which arm they're being randomized to, it can create imbalances and big problems. One example is the Bangladesh Cluster Randomized Control Trial Masking, where there are a lot more people who signed up in villages that were getting a free mask than those that were not getting a free mask. More than by chance alone. How do you explain it? Well, one potential explanation, and even the authors suggest might be true, is that people in the mask villages, they might have a sense they're getting a freebie and the people in the no mask millages might know they're not getting a freebie. Why? Because when the investigators pull up to consent them on the trial, they're either pulling up in a Toyota Yaris or a big truck with boxes in the back, okay? That's a concealment issue. You didn't conceal randomization from the subjects, and so there's an imbalance in randomization, and it creates big problems, which is randomization assumes an equal outcome distribution in the absence of an effect. But now you have one extra person for every 10 people or 20 people in one arm. You have an extra person in one arm rather than the other. Does that person have the equal outcome distribution or are they different in some way? In Bangladesh, part of the trial requires you to phone up the number when you have symptoms to let them know so they can test you for COVID. Do you think that 11th person, the person who signed up in a mask village because they saw the possibility of a freebie, who didn't sign up in the no mask village because It was a smaller car, so they suspected they weren't getting anything for free. Do you think that person, the kind of person who only signs up for a randomized study, if you feel like you're going to get something that moment, do you think that person is just as likely to dial that number as the people who would sign up for sort of more altruistic reasons? And I think it's a legitimate question that they would not be. And that imbalance could thwart the whole study design. So that's concealment. Blinding. Blinding, of course, means that once you're on the study, Are you aware of which treatment you're being assigned to? And it's true for both the patients. It's also true for the doctors. So you can have a double-blind study. It can even be triple-blind. The statistician and the analytic team can be blinded to it. Or the follow-up can be blinded to it. And I think we generally believe that blinding, it plays a huge value in studies where the primary endpoint is subjective. It's how you feel. It's how you function. It's how much pain you have. It's how much angina you have. In those cases, you really want blinding because you want to separate the treatment effect from the placebo effect. To my knowledge, the placebo effect has not resulted in people living longer lives, so one might argue it would be less necessary if overall mortality was the endpoint. But because blinding can affect subsequent treatments, you may argue in individual instances that it ought to be blinded so that the doctors don't treat people outside of the trial differently so that it isn't the intervention you're isolating the effect of, but rather some other treatment that is a consequence of the intervention. And if you really want to get into the weeds on this, you can read some of the papers we've written about sham controls and blinding that Jenny Gill and I have published where we talk about methods that you could ensure the quality of the sham and separate sort of a placebo intervention from the possibility that people will feel like they're getting a placebo. Let me expand on that. When you do a medical procedure for something like pain, like osteoarthritis of the knee, and you're doing a joint uh, washout or debridement, you can randomize people to the arthroscope going in the knee or the arthroscope going in the knee and doing the debridement. So a sham procedure, we would say we did it or we did it. But are those procedures going to be equally long? Is there going to be something about the doctor's demeanor that tips the patient off that maybe I'm in the placebo group? And the answer is we have a method where we can try to look for that and separate that from the actual effect, from the placebo effect and from you sniffing out that you're not actually getting the treatment. All right, the last thing I'll conclude about is the Kaplan-Meier plot. So once you run a randomized control trial, um, you can use all sorts of endpoints. The most common endpoint we use in randomized control trials in least in oncology is a time-to-event endpoint. It's the time until something happens. By definition, it couldn't have happened at time zero, and so that's why we always start at 0% or 100%. The time-to-event endpoint that most people are intuitively familiar with is overall survival, the time until you die, shown over time. There are other composite time-to-event endpoints that we love, PFS, DFS, TTP. PFS is progression-free survival. It's the time until you have progression or die, whichever comes first. And progression is defined as a 20% growth in tumor dimensions from the nadir value, the smallest it ever was. That means if your tumors never shrink, when they're 20% bigger, you progress. If they do shrink from the smallest they get, when you get 20% bigger than that, you progress. Also, new lesions on a scan thats often resist progression. And then death is the fourth component. TTP, or time to progression, is a lot like PFS, except death isn't scored as an event, It's something you censor someone for. So you look for progression among those who haven't died. And if they die, you'll look for progression in the people who remain. Of course, that has a big problem with the endpoint, which is that a drug that kills a lot of people might have a great TTP if it kills off the sickest patients, but it's not a good drug to take. And so that's why we move from TTP to PFS. DFS or RFS, relapse-free survival, disease-free survival, they often vary by tumor type. You know, in, In something like breast oncology, a DFS event could be the time to a cancer recurrence, well, let me point out one thing. They're typically also used in the adjuvant setting. DFS in breast could be the time to cancer recurrence in that breast, in the other breast, DCIS in that breast, in the other breast, a distant recurrence like in the spine or death, and the composite of all those things, whichever comes first is a DFS event. That's like something in breast. IDFS is invasive disease-free survival where we subtract the DCIS. You get in the weeds with these composite time-to-event endpoints. They're not all equivalent to patients. Patients don't view them all the same. Of course, it's a lot worse to die than to have a local breast cancer recurrence after breast cancer surgery, and it's a lot worse to have a spinal recurrence than it is to have a local DCIS, so they're not all equivalent. And in cancer, these composite endpoints have some correlation with overall survival. It varies by tumor type and setting, and you can read papers that I've done, papers with Allison Haslam, to find that. The kaplan Meyer method You know, it's a clever method to keep track of a time to event endpoint. It acknowledges the fact that not all the patients who enroll in a randomized study come to you on day one, 500 people here to be randomized. No, it's not like that. Maybe 20 will come in the first month to be randomized 25, the next month, 25, the next month, 25, the next month until finally have 500. And then you, let's say you started your trial in 2017, 2020 comes by and you are ready to analyze the data. You've accrued 500 people by maybe 2019 and you get 200 events. That was the first time you're going to look at the data. So you want to look at the data, but you realize that the people who enrolled in 2019, you may only have a year of follow-up on those people. The people enrolled in 2017, you've got three years of follow-up. So what do you do with the survival curve for somebody who enrolled a year ago when we start to look at 14 months or 16 months or 18 months? And the Kaplan-Meier method is simple. It's very clever. It says we're going to take everybody's information and everybody we know what happened to them in week one. So we're going to use the survival outcomes of everybody in week one. Week two, everybody who didn't have an event. Week three, so on and so on. And when you get to the point where you start to lose people because they only enrolled three months ago or two months ago or one year ago, you extrapolate the outcomes for people who you know their fate to the people who you don't know their fate. You make the estimate, the Kaplan-Meier estimate, that the guy who enrolled in 2019, he's no healthier, wealthier, or wise than the person who enrolled in 2017, so it would be reasonable to assume his survival probabilities in year two and three would be similar to what that 2017 person experienced. And that is the beauty of the method. It's a maximum information harvesting method. It maximally collects information from participants, and it uses all of that information to create a projection of what the survival function would be over time. And the moment you lose follow-up for somebody, for whatever reason, it no longer includes their data and assumes that they do just as well as someone in whom we have data. And this assumption is called uninformative censoring. That the censored person, the person who we lose track of, or that we don't have enough information on, is no different than the person in whom we do. And that by censoring them, it's uninformative. It doesn't change the survival estimate. But of course, as I talk about with Aaron Goodman, there are many times where that assumption might not be true. You might have a randomized control trial of a new drug versus placebo, like sotorasib versus placebo, and you'll have 16% of people drop out on the docetaxel arm. Sorry, sotorasib versus docetaxel. And you'll have 16% of people drop out on docetaxel because they don't want to be on that arm. And now you got a big problem, which is that is the survival function of the people who didn't drop out the same as those who do drop out? The whole purpose of a randomization was to equilibrate the outcome distribution in the absence of a therapeutic effect, but is that still true when it's only 84% of people sticking with one arm and 100% the other arm? Is that true? Or conversely, as with exemestane everolimus, you got more people dropping out on the treatment arm. What's going on here? Is it possible the experimental drug is so toxic it's making people throw in the towel? And then the moment they drop out, they no longer participate in the Composite, time to event, endpoint, PFS. You got to get scanned to be eligible for PFS. And so now you start to have imbalances that are not due to therapeutic effect and not due to randomization per se. Differences in dropouts, differences in attrition. And the Kaplan-Meier method keeps assuming that those people who stopped showing to scan are otherwise the same and would have had the same survival function. But I have a theory that the people who quit the control arm that's docetaxel because they could do better off they're probably more socioeconomically connected. They probably have more resources than those people who just had nothing, no better option. They had to take docetaxel. And I have a theory that that person who threw in the towel on Everlimus exemestane might be a little sicker, older, or more vulnerable than the person who kept swallowing those pills. And so those imbalances might drive the end point rather than the therapeutic effect. And this is called censoring. We've written a lot of papers on this topic, including some with Usama Bilal, Kate Rosen. You can pull them up. All right. I think that's the gist of it. I mean, that's the gist of what I wanted to get across in an introductory, what are we doing here, 25 minutes, gosh, longer than I thought. Yeah, that's the gist of the introduction to randomized controlled trials. Why are they so useful? They're useful because in a world of hype and uh, unbridled optimism and marketing and profiteering, they alone can separate real effects from pseudo-effects, from things that are just in your head. And they work really well for things that you think have a putative benefit, that you think have a modest to marginal effect size, which, by the way, is most of biomedicine. Most of biomedicine are things we think we help people by. Most of public health is things we think we're helping people, and they mostly have a modest to marginal effect size. Only only an idiot would think that our interventions are all parachutes. Only an idiot would use the parachute analogy because there's nothing in biomedicine that has that sort of light switch effect. And in fact, many, many empirical studies have documented that very few things Actually, nothing that I'm aware of in biomedicine has that effect. The largest one I'm aware of is ECMO for neonates and respiratory distress, and we're talking about a 40% absolute risk reduction over 30 days, whereas a parachute has a 99.999% absolute risk reduction over 10 minutes. Nothing like that. We don't do anything quite like that in, in biomedicine. Maybe tying off, if you sever your arm... Putting a tourniquet on, but I think even that might not have that high, and that might even, probably a little bit lower than that, because of maybe some spontaneous vasospasm saves a few people, and uh, some people are not going to be saved anyway. It's not going to have that kind of. I mean, there's really nothing. I can't even think of anything with a 99.999%. Okay, most of what we do is modest to marginal effect size. The Impella at best modest to marginal. Bone marrow transplant at best modest to marginal. Let's be let's be real. Everything you do in oncology modest to marginal effect size. Let's be real. And if you have something like that, the only way to separate a real therapeutic effect from the fact that you think it might be helpful is randomization. And why? Because randomization solves the three big problems that observational research is plagued by. One, unmeasured confounding. Two, time zero. And three, limiting multiplicity. Because limiting the number of times you get to run your analytical plan and cherry pick the best is a huge boon in a world of people who are incentivized to claim discovery because that's what doctors and scientists are. We're heavily incentivized to claim we thought of something clever and new. Then, once you have decided upon randomization, you need to know something about randomization ratios. I think one to one is an optimal. Two to one has some advantages. Fewer people get the one. But more people are needed for the whole thing. And so if you're only shooting winners, it's going to be good. But if you got the failure rate we got, it's not going to be good. And if you think you're enticing people, I can show you empirically that's absolutely not the case. It's not an enticement. Blinding and concealment are two important things. Concealment is a huge problem if you violate it as as they're learning. And blinding, I think, is, is really important to separate the real effect of the intervention from the psychological effect that somebody's caring for you and doing something about you. And the Kaplan-Meier method is a great way to look for the time to event. Endpoints, composite, or the rock-solid endpoints like overall survival. And the Kaplan-Meier method is pretty clever. It's a maximal information harvesting event. It's predicated on the assumption of uninformative censoring. That assumption is often violated in recent studies. All right, that's RCTs 101. Kind of just off the top of my head. Uh, With a few, with a few, just like, what do the notes actually say? The notes just say KM. It just says KMRCTs two to one. <laughs> doesn't say anything of value. <laughs> um, all right. If you like this video, go to developdrugs.substack.com and subscribe. You can get a lot of this. We're going to get even deeper. I mean, this is just like basics 101. This is just like stuff that I'm assuming everyone would know. Side note, this is also why Twitter is really kind of a pain because... You know, there are a lot of people participating in discussions and they do not even know Basics 101, so it's like just a total waste of your time to try to even talk to them. Uh, but this is what I'm hoping people know when they come into the Drug Development Substack, developdrugs.substack.com, the Drug Development Letter. We're gonna build on this. We're gonna have more sort of these kind of one-on-one instructional videos. I think I'm gonna do some landscape of oncology next. Um, then I'm gonna work my way through control arms, crossover, non-inferiority design, superiority design, I'm gonna work my way through multiple, multiplicity and randomized studies. How does that play a role in oncology? Um, work my way through surrogate endpoints, surrogate validation, and those sorts of topics. So I'm back in Papaheem Studios. I'm here in Aaron Goodman's office. Aaron Goodman, Associate Professor here at the University of California, San Diego. Here's what I'm gonna ask Aaron about. How do you advise a fellow to go about getting their first job? So Aaron has been telling me, I see, the, the, gr- the grimace on your face okay. tells me it's a good question. So, you know, Aaron takes, he advises fellows, he's a mentor to fellows. And one of the biggest questions fellows face is, how do I go about finding the first job, whether that job's in private practice, private-emia, academics, if it's research heavy, if it's clinical heavy. And so I am very curious how you go about advising a person. So let's start maybe with the person who's a fellow, who really likes what you do, you know, somebody close to you, they love hemoignancies, they love transplant, and they're saying, hey, I want to look for a job. I'd love to stay here in San Diego, but I'm going to keep an open mind because yeah. I don't know if you have openings. What do you tell this fellow? How do, you, how do they go about yeah. thinking about this?
1: I will answer that. I think I'll take one step back, and this is actually, I believe, something. You, you have a, a podcast I think I listened to on, about this uh, on your plenary session. When you're a resident and you want to become a fellow, um, you should apply or go to the fellowship where you think you want to live and work. Uh, um, fellow, I mean, I think you agree with that. Yeah, a, a fellowship is really, you know, as attendees working with fellows, I mean, we get to know you very well. We get to know the great ones. We get to know the, the okay ones and the ones that aren't so great. Uh, um, and, um, you know, so when you're applying as a resident, you really need to take into consideration where you want to be and live, at least for the start of your career and perhaps the rest of your life. Uh, um, because you know, I think most most programs take from their fellows. It's easier to get a job there. They don't, they want the for sure thing. The last thing anyone in academics wants, having now seen it, and I believe this happens everywhere, is once you hire a bad actor, it's not so easy to get rid of that. <laughs> I mean, am I right or am I wrong? <laughs> it's I, it's not so easy to get, so to, easy get to get rid of a bad actor. So. You know, do we need the smartest individual with the 10,000 papers like Dr. Prasad? Maybe not necessarily. (laughs) We want someone that's that's, that's, that's competent, uh, gets along with people, and and has ambitions, you know, and that we know from our fellows from working with for three years. So So, when you
0: applied to UC San Diego for fellowship, was it on your mind that you'd want to stay and live in San Diego?
1: I've told this story before. I mean, I interviewed, so I was at Washu for residency. Great place, loved it. I didn't want to stay in St. Louis. And... um, I interviewed quite a few places, you know, I was interested in transplants, so I went up to Seattle, Portland, a bunch of other great transplant places, and I interviewed here, and I remember calling uh, my then-girlfriend at the time, my my wife, I was drinking a beer on the beach eating fish tacos, and I was like, I'm going to live here the rest of my life, Uh, um, and, and I ranked here number one, and made, you know, from that step forward, I did everything on earth to... Get a job, uh, get a fellowship here, and then once I was a fellow here, uh, I did everything on earth to make sure that they would keep me here, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, to be a transplant,er which will leave me nice to my. Your your question is, I have a fellow I'm working with, a hypothetical fellow, and their their goal is to stay at the location, right? That was the first question. So what would I advise? So, um, so you've made it this far, you're an oncology fellow, so we're no, we know you're smart. Uh, uh you've made it through a lot of the hurdles, um. You know, in the first year and a half, you're going to be, in most fellows, year and a half of clinical rotations, you're going to be quite busy. But from early on, I know this is what everyone says, is identify, like, uh, quite a, at least two or three people that, um, that you can uh, uh, meet with, not every week, but at least periodically. where uh, um, they can give you career advice, uh, research advice, or just, you know, someone you can, you know, vent to uh um, and i would advise more than one person uh, uh, uh for example for me I, I reached out to quite a few people and some of those people i reached out to it was i'm glad i reached out to other people you know uh you don't want to put all your eggs in one one basket okay uh, um so you know if you're dead set on being let's say a leukemia or a transplant doctor here at ucsd it would be to your advantage to at the start if you think that's what you want to do uh to, to reach out a few few of the trans be like hey you know, I know it's early, but, like, my goal more than anything is to be part of your practice in three years, and I want to do everything I can to, to, to do that. I, I love when a fellow tells me that. I mean, I'm honest with them. I don't promise them anything, uh, uh, but I know that, that they're interested in that. So that's what I would do at first. Uh, and then, you know, when you're on—surprising, this shouldn't have to be said, though, but, like, if you're that person and you're on the BMT rotation— you might want to try a little bit harder than like the person who wants to be a lung cancer doctor yeah. who's just trying to get by. Yeah. You know, surprisingly, I've worked with people who I know are interested uh, in, in our fields and considering a job who like, you know, like we're showing up late or leaving early, like you know. You know, oncology is tough, but we're not neurosurgeons. We don't ask ask that much of you. You know, maybe, you know, from 7 to 8, pre-round on your patients. Uh, you know, go that extra mile. I mean, this is your chance to show that you're con- – I don't expect the first-year fellows to know really much at all about you're allergy saying, transplant. Treat
0: the rotation like a job
1: interview. Yeah, treat it like a job interview. The fact that if you're not treating it like a job interview, it just shows that, like, I don't know, it just rubs me the wrong way. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't know how you feel about that, but, like – Okay, you know, but uh, so, so your two points
0: are really yeah. strategic in who your mentors are. Yeah. Treat it like a job interview. And this is for the hypothetical person who is lucky enough that they get to do fellowship where they think they want to end up. Yes. Okay, you're a coveted resident, though. You know, you're coming out of Wash U. You're a hotshot chief resident. Yeah. Some people, you know, let's say they're stuck in a re- in a fellowship that's not their desired location. They want to crack into UCSD. They're coming from, you know, someplace else.
1: Anyplace else these days. Uh What's your advice to them? It's hard to crack in. I mean, who do they even email? It's hard to crack in. So that's where you still, you know, I, I do think, and I can only speak for leukemia and bone marrow transplant. The community is not that big. We uh, uh, we do kind of all know each other or know people who know each other. And I suspect <laughs> it's similar amongst lung cancer people. Uh, and we'll talk about the community at the end. Uh, 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 um, that you reach out to the people who are there and, and you let them know that, uh, uh, to start helping you make contacts with uh, uh, these other uh, physicians at other centers, whether it's just introductory emails to, you know, even if it's writing a review, as much as I hate writing a review, you know, write a review with something you're interested in, you learn about it, even though two people are gonna read it other than, you know, your mom and yourself, you at least are learning about something that you wanna potentially go into and it will get you a publication and you have a chance of doing it with someone, you know, at a center where they, you might wanna go to. I, I've done that with colleagues. Uh, it starts uh, bridging the, the, the ice and, you know, it starts getting your foot in the door at those other places. Uh, um, Twitter, I swear, like, I, you know, uh, uh, I feel like I'm connected to people from all over the world, and... Uh it's an easy way to get to know other attendings in at other places whether it's through interacting them hopefully politely uh <laughs> you know or or, or uh, then you know direct messaging them i do think that helps get your foot in the door but it is harder uh, so ideally you would have an attending that someone you work with in, in any center that can then start reaching out to uh, other places like i i have attendings all the time uh, uh reach out to me from other centers telling me that they have a high qualified person who just wants to go to San Diego, because everyone wants to be at San Diego, uh, and, and we're all nice. We all get it. We've all been in this similar situation, and then we usually accommodate and start uh, setting up meetings.
0: What about the fellow has, starting to look at a few programs, how do they know what's a good program, what's a good job, and what's a shitty one? How do they know... Who do they talk to? Who do they really find out the truth? Because people are going to make, you know, they're going to tell you, you're going to be at our prestigious university. We're going to give you, you know, two days of clinic. You're going to have all this support. But how do you separate the real, we got what it takes to help you versus the predatory, like, we just need labor and come on, we're going to tell you whatever you need to hear.
1: Yeah. So, and that's, you know, you really need to have, you know, I can only speak for myself. Like, I'm brutally honest with my fellows you know, and I do think there are people like me at every institution. Uh, um, you need to seek those people out. And hopefully your mentor, I think you can learn pretty fast. Having had many mentors myself, who's real and who's kind of not. And, you know, um, you know, basically, if I have a fellow applying to university of whatever, you know, uh, uh, I have buddies there now, you know. I reach out to them, and they'll be like, yeah, this place is shitty for a new faculty. Right. <laughs> like, you might have the name of our prestigious institution, but, uh, 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 you know, like, I've reached out to you, you know. And, again, the community's small, and uh, we can need, usually find you out. An,
0: you need an inside contact who's honest.
1: Y- you, you do, and uh, I, g- I guess not everyone has access t- to that. Um, and a lot of people contacts have rose-colored glasses on.
0: They're yeah. not going to tell you how it is. And then the other thing I wanted to add to this is that it can vary, like, tumor type by tumor type. Yeah. An institution can be really good and supportive in one tumor type and really miserable and have high turnover in another tumor type. Like, you know, there's, it,
1: it sometimes even varies within the department. Yeah, and this is what all like, and these are the things that, like, unfortunately as a first-year fellow you don't want to be thinking about because you're so busy trying to swallow the immense amount of information, which leads me back to... <laughs> my first thing hopefully you go to fellowship where you want to be but i I, and the more i think about it it's really i get it. it's really hard if you're going to go somewhere else uh because you know like you want to see like how are these new faculty like what's their are they being slammed in clinic and doing the dirty work for the seniors in the in the division uh you know whether uh you know working their ass off in clinic and you know uh not going to do the research they want Uh, um there's definitely places like that and and the only way to know that is to 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 start meeting people and, and hear about these things
0: what about the fellow who says, you know, to be honest with you, I just want to take excellent care of patients but also do teaching, and that's why I want to stay in academics. What do you tell that fellow?
1: Well, I mean, I was kind of that fellow. Yeah. Um, academics is research is a pillar of academics, but uh, um, in most places, you know, they want you to be academic at what you're interested in, okay, and excel and uh, put your heart and soul to it and be passionate about it. And... Um, you know you can do that in teaching you can do that uh uh, uh you know as fellows uh when i was a fellow I, I, I remember i emailed out the residency directors uh here in medicine saying i would love to give any any talks uh for you uh, you know usually attendings are pretty busy and i i, I reached out to all those people i uh, taught the medical students and even when you're on the wards, you can start um teaching the trainees that are with you and they evaluate you and the word gets around and um you're saying don't don't wait till your faculty. yeah don't wait till your faculty and the evaluations and things like that matter and you can still make it you know academic about like here you know take advantage of what there isn't at the place here at UCSD we didn't have a bone marrow transplant fellowship like, it didn't exist. And, you know, at this point in my career, I, I do do some research, but I'm starting to get kind of burnt out. I, I don't, you know, clinical trials, I am, I'm a but being the lead investigator is just not what I enjoy doing. It's not, it's very important. It's not for me. But yeah, I remember meeting with my boss. He's like, "Well, you gotta, you know, you can't just say I'm not going to do clinical trials anymore, and you know, you have to be academic." So I built a, a fellowship here. Uh, 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 so you told him you liked to docu sign. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not good at docu signing. It's hard. You got to do this two factor authentication, and then sometimes and then next, next, yeah, next, it's a next. Yeah. <laughs> so sign, sign. Yeah, sign, so sign. that wasn't for me, but you know, I made something that wasn't there.
0: But for, I think yeah, this is something to push on a little bit, which is like. Why is this, I mean, it wasn't this way, to be honest, maybe when I was a fellow, it's been 10 years, I don't think it was as bad as it is now that being an academic medical faculty in oncology is synonymous with being the PI or co-PI or site PI of four or five, six or 10 studies, you know? It wasn't synonymous with that back then. It has become synonymous now.
1: Yeah, I I think there's some truth and some not to that. I think we think as a fellow that's what you need to do, but in reality, you don't okay in reality you don't i mean there are in most and i can't speak for harvard or places like that but in most major universities you know you have to fulfill some research goal but that could be as little as just being like some middle author and some abstract i mean i'm being serious as long as you the other buckets service and teaching are are filled a little bit higher okay they don't expect everyone to be an all-star all three of these things so you are interested in research or uh, or a teaching, then you make sure that bucket's really high and you do a lot of it. And so then when you have under your review, they're like, well, you didn't do that much research, you know. Uh, But they're okay with it. Uh, That's how it's been for me. I'm telling you, it's possible because they keep promoting me. Okay, so you know, they promoted me based off following research and all those things. And they were actually, they are perfectly supportive of that uh, uh, here. And I I do believe many places are. It's not that you have to run a gazillion trials and write a review every week that no one's going to read. Okay. And, And there's other academic things you can do clinical people go well how do you become academic clinically you know i always i think a big thing especially for fellows looking for jobs um and and especially if they want to stay at a certain place well say you want to stay at a certain place and you want to do you know lung cancer acute leukemia those tend to be crowded lots of people want to do those things okay i wanted to do acute leukemia guess what i don't do a huge amount of acute leukemia anymore i do mycosis fungoides and skin lymphomas the thing that no one on this universe wanted to do Uh, and no one wanted to do it so i i called the dermatologist i'm like hey you want to do this combined clinic where we see patients together and you look at the skin vibes of them, and I give chemo and we manage these patients together. And over three years, we built a hugely successful cutaneous lymphoma clinic. Mm-hmm. So you have to take advantage of. You know uh, 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 of things that are not uh, uh you know you want to make opportunities for yourself be Fill in the whole, yeah be flexible and guess what i, I love, love cutaneous lymphomas now and, and I, I i i am one of the types i think i could be happy doing anything as long as i, I, I i'm given the resources and uh, 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 but i made that my thing and i like doing it and so i advise fellows especially when they're interviewing also is you know what are you going to bring to the place that you are going to oh i'm going to be your 20th acute leukemia doctor no, you know well, here, you know here's what you guys lack in, and I'm going to excel, and here's how I'm going to do that. Okay, so those are other ways to get creative academically without just, you know, writing a gazillion papers.
0: I'm a fellow, and then I come to you and I say, look, I'm getting some assistant professorship jobs, but at places like I'm not super thrilled about living smaller cancer centers that sort of thing, but I'm also getting some opportunities to be a fourth year fellow in myeloma, mm-hmm. or fourth year fellow in BMT, or a fourth year fellow in lymphoma fourth-year fellow in Pancreas, walk me through that. How do, how do I decide? Do yeah. I want to be an assistant professor or fourth-year fellow at the greatest institution?
1: Yeah, so... These days, the less than greatest. I've been very critical of the fourth-year fellowships, um, and I'll tell you why from personal experience. Uh, um, I, um, when I was entering my third year, there were um, no positions here, and I wanted to do bone marrow transplant, and I looked at a few other places, and they were like, you know, you need to do extra training and so uh even though i devoted a good deal of my third year right third year of most fellowships are like you know it's like the fourth year of medical school do what you want uh, uh um and so i i looked at uh, additional fourth year fellowships and they were quite work heavy uh, mm-hmm. uh lots of call and they were going to pay me shit you mm-hmm. know uh, uh they, so basically i'm a board certified at hematologist oncologist triple boarded um working as an additional fourth year fellow although it's not accredited none of these are acgme accredited uh um doing all this work at attending level as an attending, but being paid as a fellow uh, um, to just fulfill this need that people said I needed to do, even though your whole third year at most major places, um, you can do adequate advanced training in the field you want to do. So um, fortunately, so I was going to do one of those. I had offers at those, and I was going to do those, and then... um, you know things changed here at the university i was at and they're like you know you are clearly competent and we're going to support you your first year and so you know while you're a first year attending you know you're we are there we know it's not training but we're going to help you if you need help which is how it should be you know so you, sh- you you know we shouldn't need these fourth year fellowships we make it that we need it if we all agreed we shouldn't need it we should be hiring these doctors who are board certified and be okay that some of that first year you know you don't start as a first year attending with a pack clinic we all start kind of well, you're gonna have time we're gonna help you train That's should be built in as part of our, as our uh you know we should be helping our colleagues now the arguments i'll get is be like well you know um you i was like you aaron no one would hire me without that additional year and my in a perfect world we wouldn't we wouldn't we would not need that okay um i do think you know if you're I, I think there is a place some people there are fellowships that don't have bmt training uh so i could see a place for that or maybe for uh international colleagues who are trying to get their foot in the door Uh, i can see that there would be a place but there's no reason that if you're a fellow ucsf or ucsd or or stanford that you should be or any other major medical that you should be like well you need to do a fourth additional year in myeloma like I, I joked around that there was a myeloma fellowship, but there are myeloma. Fel- we need a whole fucking year to treat us about myeloma. After you've been doing it for yeah, years. Yeah, after you've been doing it for years. Like, like we got community oncologists that treat everything under the freaking sun, including myeloma, and do a damn good job at it, too. They didn't do a whole year of MGUS, you know. So, and I'm getting a little bit cynical, but, like, it's crazy the way our our, our field's gotten. And these fellowships. We need to shorten them. I mean, we, we can't be 48 uh, with no money and three kids and be, a, you know, uh, you know the, the the lung cancer fellow. Uh, did yeah. I get it? I, But I do, I, I see that there might still be a need. And I think for, for some rare it, I, situations. I, I, I get think it. It's an exploitative thing. I think mostly. it's exploitative. We shouldn't, and I have friends who've done it, and I'm friendly with them, and I feel bad. Like, And they're like, well, I wouldn't have gotten this job at Harvard or so-and-so. But, like, in my world, that shouldn't need to be. But it is, so I get why they did it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that's
0: going to make people just the right amount of angry. The right amount <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So now, let's say I'm the fellow. I come to you. I got three contracts. Or I got like three offers. Okay. Okay. Um, they all tell me that I'm not allowed to negotiate my pay. Okay. So that's one thing. What do you say about that? Then the next thing oh. is, oh, okay. Then they say, um, you know, there are differences in how many days a week and uh, how much startup I get. And um, their differences in like how they're gonna mentor me one place pays less but it's a huge name one place pays a little bit more Um, I'm a little confused about like these bonus payments these RVU tied payments some places say I get to go to the VA some places say I don't get to go to the VA some places say I got to do all this inpatient some places don't so what do you look for in these offers what are you telling them to take seriously how do you think about it
1: yeah so the first you're going to have to ask those questions once. There's a lot of questions. The first mm-hmm. one was with negotiating pay. Yeah, my pay, yeah. Um, you have more power, actually, than you <clears throat> think. Um, most academic centers, when they're hiring, need someone because there is a lot of clinical, and it's actually, they don't usually need someone to do this high-end level research. They need someone to see patients and enroll in clinical trials. That's what makes them money. Okay, They can't do any of it without that, okay? So they're usually desperate, actually, for most cases, okay? And I know this because I'm seeing it, okay? And so when they offer you um, a job as uh, an instructor that gets paid, you know, not so great, as opposed, and they'll be like, oh, we'll let you be an instructor for a year or two uh, before we let you be an assistant professor. I ah, uh, 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 uh outside of maybe a few places that really i would argue that to the death of you i mean that was sorry you sissy that was offered to me <laughs> and, and i go what the f-? I, I go no I, I go they're like well it's all this paperwork and in reality it's actually it, it, it is probably slightly more work with people hiring you but just be like no like i, I i'm I'm, a, I'm gonna i want to start as assistant professors like everyone else like just say no i mean that's what i said and they're like, you know, see what you can do. And then, you know, email someone. And usually, ideally, email someone to support you, too, whether it's that mentor or someone else you've worked with. it be like, this guy's good. Don't don't dick him around, okay? And that's exactly what I did. And instead of being an instructor, uh, I was an associate prof- assistant professor, you know. So don't let that happen to you. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. As far as pay, um, there's various pay structures. And I think this is something you don't realize until you start looking at jobs and i didn't know about it so one it's a salary where no matter how many patients you see you will get that salary okay that's it's, my life yeah that's <laughs> i wasn't gonna <laughs> quote you but that's that's some people's lives in this room um and it's not me uh <laughs> and uh i i i can imagine that that starting fee is probably similar forever well it is the same. And if for some reason, you're not getting the same as everyone else. So make sure what you're getting is the same as everyone else. And if it is, I don't think there is much negotiating power to that. You just have to accept that. And if you're accepting that type of job and that type of money isn't adequate or you're going to want more time to research, you better at least have the skill set already to start getting extra sources of funding. Okay. Someone, I'm gonna be honest with you guys. Someone like me, that skill set didn't exist. I wasn't, I wasn't a first year attending who could write grants for full time. That, that was not Aaron Goodman. Okay. So places that I looked at uh, um, um, had structures where it's you're reimbursed as for patients. It's called RVU, and basically um, you get what you eat. Meaning every patient I see, I make money for. Okay, and I don't make money for giving chemo okay sorry to the conspiracy you know i don't get any more money for the chemo i get money for the patients i'm seeing and their complexity okay so um if i do a lot of clinical work i make more money if i do less clinical work i make less money but it's completely determined on me and you know what, if I feel like I need more money, maybe I'll pick up that extra week of inpatient service that other colleagues who are more in their seniors are dying to get rid of. Um, and that structure worked very well for me. So I think that's a, that's something. And, and, you know, there are many places that do this, uh, um, uh, depending on what type of track you're on. So that was the type of track that worked for me because I do a set amount of clinics, a set amount of inpatient time. It, it provides a salary that I can support myself, my wife, and three kids at San Diego. And it still gives me some ample time. I don't need thousands of hours to do hardcore research but i do like having days or two where i can sit and write you know do do the stuff that makes me happy teach and, and that strategy has worked well do for me. this video and do this video yeah I, I, again so it's just dependent and you know if, if you sign your you might you know if you're signing up for an academic job that's a set salary where you're doing clinic four days a week nonstop, and you're not making a penny more for seeing more patients than someone doing less that you got to be okay with that. So that name or whatever you're going, you better be okay. You better be cool. Then you better make sure that there's an out of that. I can't imagine. Like I wouldn't want to be seeing 10,000 patients a day and making what I would see for seeing 10. You know, I, 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 as much as the clinician as I am, I do like getting reimbursed for what I do. So let me ask you this. Yeah. And my first job was just like yours is now,
0: which is heavily RVU based. Yeah. Uh, what about the unintended consequence, which is that? And tell me if you think it's off base. There's multiple doctors seeing the same diseases. And if you're all gonna get more the more you see, there's a little competition among doctors
1: in terms of who's gonna get more referrals, who's gonna get the news.
0: And that's kind of a little uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, it is. Um I will say um no, that that is, and it does create some some interesting group dynamics. I will say um for BMT, um, we're kinda all evened out because we all do ten to eleven weeks of inpatient. (laughs) And um, we work our asses off on that inpatient, but that's 20 patients a day, you know, all the highest level billing, you know, and that kind of equals. So really, my clinic, it's kind of like just extra at uh, that. But it does. So that that is a downside. And you know, um, you know, for me, um, it does. You know, I'm an academic, but like, uh, you know, there's there's some marketing involved. You know, it to me, it pushes me to provide good care. I mean, we should all be providing top level care, but it, it's kind of rewarding when you start with no referrals and you write a good note you call up the physician and like you start getting referrals in the in 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 the community or even that's a key point though you're making some efforts to make the physician who referred feel good about the referral yes it's you know you know i i take pride in writing concise detailed good notes and i call the physician and like you know i they have my text and like you know when i provide an opinion i don't just say you know oh, I want to give an intrathecal CNS prophylaxis. You know, I actually am there for them so when the patient's getting the chemo and a side effect comes up, like, I, that's what the, these, the, the referring doctors, especially with some of the newer drugs, they don't have experience using these drugs. Uh, and sometimes they just need help walking them through that. So I've made it a point to to, to provide that level and that, that helps people send back. They want help. Uh, uh, um, and it, it builds the referral base. So, um, yeah, it does add some competitiveness to it. But, um, you know, you better you do the more you reward I, know I like that kind of um, I like that for me that works how do you think about how important is it that you like
0: your new boss or you really hit it off with them how important is it you like your new colleagues you hit it off with them how important is that that unique sort of human connection between those people
1: yeah so um our our group yeah you don't having had bad apples before they can ruin a group dynamic um, you do want to get along with your colleagues. I mean, I'm like best friends with a lot of my colleagues. We, um, like I literally, my colleague right there, I knock on the thing kind of like, you know, a sitcom and we talk, we have coffee, we go over cases. Like there's like, like if I present a case, like you don't want the colleague to be like, why are you asking that? You're an idiot. Like, like you know, we all ask what may seem idiotic questions, but we just don't know what we do is very tough. So. Uh, uh, you do want colleagues... Some of yeah. us
0: ask him on Twitter.
1: Yes. <laughs> but, like, it's it's important to... Uh, uh, but, again, you know, that's something not... not. Um, it's hard to know going into a practice. I mean, you can kind of get it, like, on that interview day. I feel like you w- can see... What about see- the boss? The boss? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not just saying the stakes of my boss. I mean, I got a real chill, awesome boss, you know, um, who's, like, not malignant and uh, a big deal, built this program, and, um, you know... Um, like, I can't imagine working, and and, and, and allows uh, me freedom, um, allows me to do some of the things I do. I mean, of course, like, I can't do crazy, crazy stuff, but um, uh, 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 you want a boss that support? like, I told you guys, I, I talked to my bosses, I was like, you know, I'm not the big clinical trial guy, we got more than, they're like, that's fine, you know, excel in what you want. They didn't just be like, you have to do this, so... Um, you, you hopefully can have a boss that allows you to that's why you go into academics. Go into academics to excel in what interests you and hopefully advance that particular interest. There's many routes to that, okay? Uh, which again was something I was unaware of at the start of fellowship but not until I kind of got wasn't attending that I realized you could do that. But you want a boss that's supportive of that. I agree with all that. Yeah. But the only thing I'd add as a proviso is every once in a while
0: the boss that you came and you really look forward to work under takes a new job. Yeah. You know, so I think there's gotta be a little door cracked open for what if somebody else is doing this. It happened, I think, famously to David Steensma because he went to work with Gary Gilliland, and I think Gary was hired by Merck to develop Pembro immediately after. And so I think that, yes, I I do agree with you. It matters a lot, but one should always be a little bit cautious that that if it's one person you're going there to work with, that one person may be going to go work at Merck or, you know, go to work somewhere else. And so have two people, at least three, maybe four, that you'd love to work with as backups.
1: Yeah, you shouldn't go, yeah, no. You shouldn't go to a place for one individual. If you, like, want to go work with whoever it is and everything else sucks about it, yeah. that's the wrong decision. For me, um, and again, I, I get it. Like, for me, I live in a great, you know, environment. uh have good colleagues. So everything was a perfect fit for me.
0: Seems like no downsides here, huh?
1: There, I mean, there, I mean, trust me, uh, you know, there are, there, and that's the other thing, too. You no know, downside. no, there's no perfect job. Uh, and if you go into that expecting it, like, there's issues that come up but again, I always have to take a step back and be like, "Look, Aaron, you know, you get paid, we, I, you get paid good money. Uh, you get to treat the diseases you want to treat. You get to teach. Uh, you get to travel. Like, you know, put, a, you know, I do the crap that I don't. want, I do it. You know, uh, there's going to be no job without crap. Okay, uh, unless you win the lottery and you can do whatever the hell you want. So, um, you know, you can't go into, you can't go into uh, expecting perfection.
0: I think there's a lot of good advice. I mean, the things, the themes that I think are like really relevant are. It seems like you treat a lot of things like that. They're like a job interview. Even the way you're treating referrals is like a job interview because it's a job interview for more referrals. The way you treat the rotation is like a job interview. You are a little bit strategic. You're going to seek out people and work in places that you see yourself fitting in. Um, you think it's important to you know be treated fairly and be paid fairly. At the same time, the flip side is you got to work hard. You know you should. It's not. Nobody's going to pay you. I think the thing I always tell people is. There's no job where they'll pay you a lot to do nothing. No. If you're going to make a lot of money, you're going to work for it. You know, in private practice too. There's nobody's going to pay you to do nothing. So, y- you decide how much you want to work and how much money. And there is sort of a diminishing value of the additional dollar. At some point, you have so much money, you've satisfied your basic, you know, needs, and each additional dollar is maybe not worth the price of that much extra time away from you know doing something outside of work, which you know people will know that you like to do.
1: Yes, and I think the the key point is. Um As you said, like, nothing's just going to happen. You have to work hard. And I think we all have the skill to work hard. It's Just work. You do it. As long as you find those things that you're interested in, which I know we all have interest, so everyone has interest, And we all know how to work hard. You just got to do it. And people will say, you're lucky, you're not. There's actually not so much luck, at least in my opinion. Uh, If you work hard and excel in the things you're interested in, the opportunities will happen, okay? Uh, You know, I have colleagues with dramatically different interests than me who want to be the next thing in myeloma. And and she's doing a wonderful job. She came here and branched out to those people, met with them, got involved in those things. But she worked, but she was interested in it. Not my interest, but her interest. And she's awesome, my colleague uh, in myeloma. So, like you gotta, you got to do the work. And, you know, if you don't want all those benefits of doing the work, I mean, yeah, you, if you don't like working hard, you, you, there's a balance. The less you work, the less of those benefits. And there is some happy medium for everyone, and hopefully everyone finds their equilibrium. But it is actually in your control a, a, a lot of it. Okay. Okay, the last thing before we're done, we've got to go do some stuff. More fun than this. Yes. Uh,
0: so I guess the last thing I want you to tell them is, you know, and tell me if I'm wrong here, you also, you carved your own way. Because I bet if we go back to Aaron Goodman circa 2017, board-certified Aaron Goodman, shorter hair, uh, no highlights in the hair. Uh, this is sun. sun. Right, natural highlights. Uh, yeah, whatever you tell yourself. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't dye my hair, okay. for the record. Sure. Uh, we'll allow that. Uh, okay, so we go back to 2017 Aaron Goodman. And if we could pluck him in time and bring him out to who you are today, I think he's going to say, Wow. A lot of these things you're doing right now, I anticipated and I was optimistic. Like I'd be giving these med school lectures, I would be wrote, taking good care of patients, I'd be writing good notes. I think like Aaron Goodman 2017 would totally get Aaron Goodman 2023. But some things you're doing right now, Aaron Goodman 2017 would be like shit. I didn't know, I didn't see that coming. I didn't know you'd be the Papa, you'd be mm-hmm. Papa Heem. I didn't know you'd be you know Papa Heem Substack. I didn't know you'd be giving all these educational talks, and I didn't know you'd be inspiring like a next generation of doctors to sort of push back against pharmaceutical interests when it's right to push back. So I guess, I'm curious, how do you think about the fact that at least some of what you've done, you've had to forge your own way. And there's nobody, I I know there's nobody who was like, oh, I'm your mentor in this because nobody was doing that. So where does that fit into the career thinking? Like, how much should the person joining the next, taking the faculty job be like, you know, as much as this stuff is planned, maybe I'm gonna push in a direction that nobody's ever done before.
1: Yeah, no, I would say a lot of what I, I could not have imagined. I mean, I knew I was going to be taking care of patients and treating. Uh, but to be honest, if you would asked me 20,000, seven, you know, when I started, it was, I was going to be mainly seeing leukemia and running clinical trials. And I hardly see any leukemia anymore. <laughs> CT cell lymphoma, and I don't run a lot of clinical trials anymore. So um, I, I basically let my interest take me, you know, my interest changed. And I'm not going to lie, like uh, I've told the story, I think, before. I started Twitter uh, three or four years ago because someone says it's, it's good and uh, for, for networking. That was the word. Uh, and I uh, picked it up, and I thought it was stupid, and then I picked up again uh, right before the pandemic. And um, I uh, did the algorithm's strong, and it, it innately knew what somehow sparked interest in my brain. And some of your stuff came up, uh, and people like you. And uh, I got uh, interested uh, in the stuff that you just talked about, clinical trial analysis, uh, are these drugs that we're using... Uh, as good as we think they are, and uh, I started tweeting about it. And must, something must have caught your eye because I, you know, here I am with two followers, and you know, um, you're like, you know, I'm not trying to make him feel good, but like he reached out to me. Uh, I didn't reach out to him uh, uh, and says, I like what you're tweeting, and do you want to work on something together? And here I am, a first year, you know, you know, you, you was that long ago? Yeah, first, I was a first or second year, and we, we wrote. You know, and I then I told him my story how I started to have these feelings about smoldering myeloma all the treatment, and you know, and we wrote an article in Blood about it. You know, I've never been in Blood to this day. I think I haven't been back in Blood. I don't but, think I've been back in there. We didn't invite us back. <laughs> it was, it was good about, but like that happened just uh, you know because I started tweeting things I liked, and you know, you introduced me. We're the our field's awesome. We we all know each other, and we tend to. The, you know, the, I haven't even thought about this, but like, like-minded like people, they find their people. Just like, yeah, I'm not the myeloma trialist. They found their people, and they're a great group, and they support each other. And people and, and like, like Monty found out. Yeah, yeah. Like, Monty, we would never have found each other ten, 20 years ago. No, never 20 years ago. Monty reached out. So that's how I got started, you know, retweets. And then I just started, you know, what interests me. How I liked interesting things in the clinic. I would tweet people like learning, and it kind of fed upon itself. And that's how the whole Papa thing. thing. I guess a part yeah. of it is that you, even though you're in your career
0: you left a little bit open for, yeah. like, wherever life takes you. Because I think that one thing that the fellows probably should hear is that, like, to some degree, even though people's lives look like they're planned, often we feel like a kite in a hurricane. Yeah. You're being blown, which way? And sometimes you got to go with the wind. You know, you can't fight all the wind. And you can't be so hell-bent on what you want to do that you don't go where the wind blows you. And sometimes it blows you in a way, and you're much glad, you're very happy that you ended up there.
1: Yeah, no, you, I mean, you, there's chances you have to take. And, 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 and again, we met money and a few other people and uh you know if it weren't for twitter my academic production wouldn't be so great right now <laughs> you know and it's uh you know I, it does open up like you know i'm gonna give some talk in germany you know one of the people in munich germany know anything about uh, aaron goodman this jewish guy from san diego you know who's gonna uh that's a clinician but like uh you have to let the opportunities take you where, where they come and uh, um you know just like you know uh, with going back to the full circle to the substack i have all this stuff well, I must as well make it available and let it build upon itself. And, you know, uh, uh, people like the way I teach clinical medicine in these 20 minutes. So why not just, I like talking about it, uh, you know, so why not just record it and make it available and see where it takes me, you know? Uh, 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 hopefully to better places. <laughs> Aaron Goodman, it's been a yes, so. I, I think this is
0: rock solid, rock solid. This is the video that I would want to watch before I went on the job hunt because I think we covered sort of, you know, I think one of the key messages up front was like, if you want to learn about places, you got to have somebody in there. And guess what? If people want to learn about San Diego or UCSF, they can always contact us because we'll be that person who will tell you sort of an un- unfiltered but maybe also honest, try to be honest, uh, way, strengths and weaknesses of different programs. Um, and there's somebody like that in every place. you got to find those people and you got to seek it out that way. And I think all your advice is rock
1: solid. All right. Yeah, no, I, you're, again, Find I, I think the most important is find those people wherever you are. They exist. Sometimes they'll find you, uh, uh, but you can seek them out. There's enough place people at every institution that there, there are people you can find that will help you. Okay? You have to find those people. And now I'm sure the listeners know we're probably going to get a beer and play guitar. So on that positive yeah, note. that's exactly what we're going to do probably <laughs> we're
0: going to do. Because it's 3 o'clock. I know. I might even still work. I know, All right. really. All right. Uh, thank you.